retire. In Acts 18, we see the Apostle Paul go from Athens to Corinth. Now, we don't know what Paul looked like. We don't have a Scooby. But just like we've tried to give you a picture of what's going on in Graceland, it's helpful for us to get a picture of Paul entering the city in your head. Corinth was massive and mad. 750,000 people, a leading city in the Roman Empire. Epaphrodites, the goddess of love, had her temple there, supposedly with a thousand shrine prostitutes. It also had two ports, meaning it could import and export all around the world. So, even just from that, you've got this mad mix of merchant sailors and temple prostitutes. Guess how that went down? You then had speakers and theatres pretty much on every corner. The equivalent of the Olympic Games happened there every two years. So the hustle and bustle of Corinth was massive and mad. And entering this massive mad city comes the Apostle Paul. And this is how he enters. We know this from 1 Corinthians 2. And he writes, I came in weakness, with great fear, and with trembling. So Paul doesn't swagger in strong. Now he kind of hobbles in hesitant. Still knackered from being on the run from the jealous Jews that have chased him out of loads of different times. Still bruised from the battering he took in Philippi. Still super anxious about all the new Christians he's had to leave behind as he's fled. Still set on preaching Jesus to the ends of the earth, including this city. But weak, fearful and trembling. Bible's very real, isn't it? Like, Paul's very honest. He's not some giant hero of the Bible that me or you can't relate to. Nah, sometimes he just felt overwhelmed and down and anxious, just like you or me. He's just one bloke in a big city. So where does Paul start in the massive madness of Corinth? Or maybe more accurate, how does Jesus grow his church in this city? Because I want to show you not only how Jesus builds his church, but how he strengthens Paul's weakness. And as we've looked at this in Grace Mount, it's made us grateful that Jesus has done the same things for us as he did for Paul here. I think it'll help you, if you're a new Christian, know what it means to be part of Jesus' church. But if you guys at Sharp Chapel are a church that wants to plant more churches, I think looking at this together will help us know how do we pray for and prepare to get stuck in with breaking new ground for the sake of new life? How do you pray for Adam in Queensbury, Martin in Hoyk, Matt at Hope City and us in Gracemount? Or what do you pray for the next plan? I want to show you seven things Jesus gives to the weak and the fearful Paul as Jesus grows his church in this massive mad city. And here's the first one. He gives to Paul, number one, fellow workers. Paul doesn't just enter Corinth weak and empty-handed. He enters alone. But the first person he bumps into is a bloke called Aquilus and his missus called Priscilla. Now, they are originally Jews, just like Paul. They're now Christians, just like Paul. They're tent makers, just like Paul. And they're not originally from Corinth, just like Paul. Verse 2 tells you they're Italian. Most likely the story is... They had a decent tent-making business in Rome, but when a brutal emperor emptied Jews from the city, they had to flee and ended up in Corinth, just like Paul. They'd lost everything, their home, their business, their identity, and they'd had to start from scratch all over again. And maybe in their heads they're going, God, 
What is the script here? Why have you put us here? Why have you let us go through this? Because from a human perspective, they are displaced refugees in Corinth. But from Jesus' perspective, they were deliberately placed in Corinth. So that although Paul enters weak, empty-handed and alone, Jesus provides him with a believing couple to stay with and a job that matches his skill set. And Priscilla and Aquila aren't just a short-term B&B that Paul uses, fleeces and then leaves behind. These guys become lifelong fellow workers. You can read about what Paul says about them in um, Romans chapter 16. He goes, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me, and not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. The reason behind their lives being thrown together with Paul seemed so random. But Jesus was doing his thing, in part for Paul's sake. So that their lives became so invested and intertwined with his that they would be willing to risk their lives for his. Now that's a reminder that folk in ministry need good mates. And one of the reasons me and Sarah are still going is because Jesus miraculously, I believe that, has caused our paths to cross with people who were once strangers but are now some of the most steadfast fellow workers. We could tell you about lots like Mark and Fawns who came down and miraculously from the highlands have got a house here and are labouring with us. We could tell you about Margaret and Kenny, who I think miraculously in answer to prayer have given their retirement to labour in our scheme. We can tell you about lots more in our church. But it is a reminder that the people you send out from Charlotte don't just need your funding, they need fellow workers. So don't just be prepared to give, but to go. And don't just be prepared to love them when they go, but maybe even leave with them when they go. Because people not in full-time ministry can be fellow workers in ministry. Now, these guys are tent makers, but that doesn't make them second-class members of the church in Corinth. They are fellow workers with Paul in Corinth. And in making tents with Paul, they helped strengthen him for ministry and shared ministry with them. So what does that mean? You're a sparky. You're a cleaner, you're a surgeon, you're a pupil support worker, you're a delivery driver, you're a stay-at-home mum, or you're retired. Well, your calling and the life it provides are opportunities for ministry. So you think like Priscilla and Aquila and they go, making tents is our work, but making tents is an opportunity to minister to Paul. Making tents pays for our house. But the house will become a meeting place for the church. Making tents is what we do for a living. But making disciples is what they were living for. This couple are a great model of doing our work and living our lives in a way that makes the church grateful for us. Because there is a huge difference between being someone who just attends a church and someone who's a fellow worker in a church. And I think that's been part of the challenge of church in lockdown, hasn't it? That we don't just get into this rut, and it is a rut, where we become passive watchers of church rather than active workers for a church. But as we track the narrative, verse 3, Paul cracks on with them, and during the week he makes tents. But then every Saturday, verse 4, he begins preaching the Bible. And then as you look in verse 5, Jesus gives Paul both the second and the third things that I want to look at tonight. Verse 5 starts by saying, 
when Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia. The second thing Jesus gives to Paul is strengthen him and to build his church in Corinth is ministry companions. There's a difference between these people he's just met and then these guys who turn up. These are Paul's boys. They've been a little trio together since Derby in Acts 16 and they were tight. Timothy's like a son to Paul. But here's what had gone down. After Paul had been chased out of Berea in Acts chapter 17, Silas and Timothy had to stay behind and Paul embarked on a little solo career in Athens. They had not showed up for a while and so Paul had had to do the thing alone and travel to Corinth alone. So how do you think in verse 5 when he sees them on the horizon? buzzing and the band's bad together see you mustn't underestimate the loneliness of gospel ministry and so don't underestimate the importance of companions for those in ministry again it's one of the things i'm grateful for in gcc that the elders aren't just guys who have the title of an elder along with me but they're companions to me i i think it's the thing i pray for smithy down in Hoyt most often given that he's the only elder in his church, he's going to feel the loneliness and he's going to need those ministry companions. Paul needs them in Acts 18. Because notice what happens next. If you read verse 5, when Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching. So up to this point, he's had tools in his hands six days a week making tents and then the Bible in his hand just one day a week preaching Jesus. But when they arrive, he puts down his tent making tools and he goes exclusive Bible seven days a week. And that's partly probably because the band's just back together and they strengthen them for it. But partly it's what those ministry companions bring with them from Macedonia. And here's a detail that's not in Acts. But Paul tells us later when he writes one of his letters back to Corinth. And this is 2 Corinthians chapter 11 verses 8 and 9. He says, when I was with you, and needed something I wasn't a burden to anyone for the brothers who came from Macedonia speaking about um, Titus and Timothy when they came they supported me with what I needed so Silas and Timothy didn't come just to make the band back together they came from the churches in Macedonia full of cash and support for Paul's ministry Here's the third thing that Jesus gives to Paul in Corinth. Needed supplies. Gifted to Paul from the churches in Macedonia. Now these were churches that started through Paul's preaching. In Philippi, in Thessalonica and in Berea, he'd seen these churches start. But he'd never got to see them finish because in each place he got chased out by a mob that wanted them dead. In those days, there's no WhatsApp or Zoom to check back in with them to find out how they're getting on. And so Paul's been left in the dark. Later on, he'll speak of these Macedonian churches of having an intense longing and how he made every effort to see them. But he couldn't. He had no idea how they were getting on. Were they still trusting Jesus? Or had they started getting battered like he had? And had they fallen away under that pressure? Maybe part of the weakness and the trembling that Paul had entering Corinth was stressing and questioning in his head about whether his suffering in Macedonia to see a church started had been in vain. 
So when Silas and Timothy come from there, they come not just to be his ministry companions again, they come with the needed supplies that shows that the churches aren't just surviving, but they're thriving. That these churches have been generous in giving towards Paul's ministry in the gospel. This isn't just actually supplies that allow Paul to go all in in Corinth. This is an encouragement to Paul that there's Christians in the places that he's had to flee who are still all in for Jesus. He'd supplied them with the gospel that they needed to be saved. Now they supply him with what he needs so he can preach that gospel to others who need to hear it. See, his ability to go all in seven days a week Bible and give up the tent making is down to their generosity with their money. There's a lesson for those of us who are new Christians. Getting saved by Jesus changes the way you use your money. There's a model in there for us in terms of gospel partnership. Churches don't exist for their own sake. They exist to support gospel ministry beyond their own borders. And there's a thank you in there from us to you. That I've not had to make tents in Gracemount because in part you guys at Charlotte and your generosity has allowed us to go all in. And we don't just receive that as money in the bank. It comes as encouragement for us to keep going. That is part of the needed supply. So, so far, fellow workers, ministry companions, and then needed support. And so verse 5, Paul bashes on as he elsewhere. But, same thing that always seems to happen in the book of Acts. Verse 6, the Jews oppose them. They start abusing them. And it's worth grabbing what Paul says in verse 6 as he leaves the synagogue. He says in verse 6, your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent of it. From now on I'll go to the Gentiles. Let me speak to you for a second if you're not a Christian. But that you've heard the gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus, time and time again. If you keep on rejecting it, there will be no excuses for your guilt on judgment day. Your blood will be on your own head. But let me speak to you if you're a Christian, but you've not yet told your friends or your neighbours or your colleagues the good news of Jesus. What excuse will we have for their blood being on our hands on Judgment Day? Our evangelism or our lack of it is something that we will be accountable for. Now we're not going to get stuck there, but I think it's worth saying. Paul leaves the synagogue. Blood be on your own hands. And again, that could give Paul more reasons to feel weak and fearful. But watch what Jesus gives them in verses 7 and 8. He goes to a community right next door. So he leaves the synagogue, out one door, in the next. And he's then given, here's the fourth thing we're going to see, many new believers. Crispus, verse 8, the synagogue leader and his entire household believed and many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptised. The message is some will oppose and abuse, but some will be believed and be baptised. Through the weakness of Paul, coming discouraged out of the synagogue, Jesus gives them the cheeky little encouragement that when he goes in next door and preaches the foolishness of the message of Christ crucified, there is power to save. 
And Luke often points out in Acts that the most, in most places, prominent people got saved. And here he mentioned ones that must have been a massive encouragement to Paul. The leader of the synagogue he just got booted from believes in Jesus. Him and his entire household. Which means, don't write off the least likely people from the least likely places. Keep praying that nobody's get saved. But it's not wrong to pray that prominent people would get saved so that Jesus would become more prominent. That'd be a great thing to pray for Adam in Queensbury or Martin Hoyk or Matt Hope City or us in Gracemount. That Jesus would give us the encouragement of many people saved, but especially prominent people. This is why we plant. We plant to see people saved, to see many new believers. We're not just planting to create a few more spare seats in Charlotte, but to make heaven a little bit more crowded. But it's not a wrong thing to pray that among the many who get saved, some prominent people would get saved. We preached Acts last year and we prayed this time and time again, especially as Luke recorded Acts for prominent women. And we've seen that prayer answered. Um, we baptised a lassie called Nikita in December. She's a prominent lady in our community. We'd love you to pray for her. But Jesus gives Paul the encouragement when he's just been booted that many new believers show that the gospel is still powerful as salvation. So, tracking where we've been, Paul's entered weak and empty-handed, all alone, but so far Jesus had loaded him up with fellow workers, ministry companions, needed supplies, and then now many new believers. But Jesus isn't finished yet. Because in number five, Jesus reminds Paul that strength comes not just in the gifts Jesus gives, but in Jesus himself. The fifth thing Jesus gives to Paul in Corinth is his promises. Watch along from verse nine, because Jesus is going to give Paul three commands backed up by three promises. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Don't be afraid. Keep on speaking. Don't be silent. For I'm with you. No one's going to attack or harm you because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half teaching them the word of God. Now why does Paul need the three commands? Don't be afraid. Keep on speaking. Don't be silent. He needs him because he's just like us. He got scared. He was tempted not to speak about Jesus. And he's considering silence. Amazing. Jesus knows Paul's weakness. But Jesus didn't try and shout or shame Paul out of his fear and his silence. Now for Paul's panic, Jesus provides his promises. Why is it that there's no need to fear? Why is it there's no need for silence? For I am with you. In all the massiveness and the madness of Corinth, you are not alone. I'm near. For no one's going to attack and harm you. You've had that in the past. You'll get it in the future. But in Corinth, this will be a place that you are protected. And third, because I have many people in this city. The reason for this season of safety is because Jesus has got people who are going to get saved through Paul's preaching. What a promise. Many people in this city. 
If I said to you, imagine there's a million pounds hidden in one of the wheelie bins in Grace Night, none of you would bother looking because it's just my impotent imagination. But if that lad Jeff Bezos or whatever his name is, the lad who owns Amazon, put a video up on YouTube with proof that in an active lockdown charity he placed a million pounds in 50 different wheelie bins in Gracemount. You'd be locking off this sermon right now and you'd be checking every bin in our scheme, wouldn't you? Why? The certainty of the prize fuels the perseverance of the searcher. What is it that kept Paul in Corinth? Another 18 months knowing that Jesus was with him that Jesus was protecting him and that Jesus had people who would get saved as he spoke. Jesus says to Paul what he said to his disciples, I have other sheep who are not of this sheepfold. I must bring them in. And you know what? This is what holds together everything that is happening in Acts 18. Why did Jesus bring Priscilla and Aquila here? Why does he reunite Paul, Silas and Timothy here? Why did the Macedonian churches send the supplies here? All because Jesus had many people here. What are you going to invest your life in? Don't waste your life searching the wheelie bins of Gracemount for cash. Invest your life searching for Jesus' unfound people in this city. Because his promise is what will make us persevere. Now there's a narrative tract in Acts 18. Could get a little bit contentious because in verse 10 Jesus said to Paul, no one's going to attack you. But then you read in verse 12, the Jews in Corinth made a united attack on Paul. And you go, whoa, Jesus, have you just broken your promise? Two verses later. Well, no, because you read on, although they make an attack, Jesus thwarts the attack and Jesus is going to give here's the sixth thing he gives today he gives to Paul peace to stay so these Jews who have been banging at Paul the whole way through the book of Acts they approach a guy who's basically the prime minister of the city the Jews had to deal with him that they were the legit religious organization and so they had freedom to operate within the city and because they wanted to shut Paul down, they present Gallio, and they present Paul to Gallio as a like an, an illicit group who's breaking the law. Now Gallio's by no means an upstanding straight-laced ruler. You can see that in verse 17 when he shows no concern that the new synagogue ruler gets his head absolutely smashed in. But as Gallio listens to this united attack from the Jews on Paul. He decides not to shut Paul down, but to shut the Jewish attack on Paul down. And he gives Paul permission to crack on. And in allowing Paul to preach Jesus and establish a church in Corinth, Gallio actually sets a precedent for the whole of the Roman Empire. Not only that, Gallio's pronouncement is Jesus keeping his promise to Paul in this city no one will attack or harm you. I will be suffering for Paul in the future, just as there was in the past. But this becomes a little season of safety to strengthen him for the suffering that's to come. What a gift. Peace to just crack on and stay. 
Now we need to crack on uh, and fast forward in the story because our time's going. But Paul eventually, after 18 months in Corinth, he leaves, having seen Jesus keep his promise to build his church in this city. And Paul ends this journey by going back to Jerusalem, verse 22, to Antioch in verse 23, and he finishes by traveling from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phygera and strengthening all the disciples. Now, I think even that's significant. Having been strengthened by Jesus in Corinth, giving him fellow workers, ministry companions, needed support, many new believers, his promises and peace to stay, Paul is then strengthened for the sake of strengthening others. Maybe he did that just by telling the story of these six things that Jesus did for him in Corinth. But once Paul's left, Jesus isn't finished in Corinth yet. Because although Paul's left, Jesus is going to prepare the seventh thing, final thing, someone to take over. See, Jesus was at work before Paul got there by positioning Aquila and Priscilla. And Jesus is at work after Paul has left. So Priscilla and Aquila had left Corinth with Paul in verse 18, but then Paul left them in verse 19 to go to Ephesus. Left them in Ephesus. And in Ephesus, Priscilla and Aquila meet a guy called Apollos. Now Apollos is clever, he knows his Bible, he's passionate, and he teaches Jesus. But he's still a bit rough around the edges, he's got some stuff to learn. And Priscilla and Aquila, this couple who have been growing a tent-making business, they see this guy Apollos as another opportunity to invest just like they invested in Paul. Doesn't matter where they are, Rome, Corinth, Ephesus, whilst they make tents, they grow disciples. One example they are, right? Their instinct is to invest in people. Their home is a home for the church and their way of life is the way of God. And once equipped by this couple, although he's from Alexandria and now in Ephesus, for some reason, Apollos has it in his heart to go to Corinth. And when he gets there, verse 27, he is a great help to those who by grace had believed when Paul was there. And Paul will think about this later on, the fact that he had left, but through Priscilla and Aquila, Jesus has pushed Apollos back to Corinth. And Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3, 5, he says, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God had been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The church in Corinth was not Paul's church. It was the church of God in Corinth. The church in Corinth wasn't started by Paul, planted by Paul, grown by Paul, or established by Paul. Paul didn't learn these seven things in a book, or pay to download them in an app, or achieve them in his own strength. All seven of these things were what? Gifts from the hands of Jesus. Who was at work before Paul got there. Who was behind everything whilst he was there, and Jesus was doing his thing after Paul had left. He gave someone to carry on the work because Jesus will build his church. We need to get that. 
Charlotte Baptist Chapel is not Paul Reese's church. Christ Church Queensferry is not Adam's church. Hoyt Baptist isn't Martin's. Hope City isn't Matt's. Graceman isn't mine. They're the church of God. They're the gift and work of Jesus in the power and presence of his spirit. But Jesus invites us to invest our weakness so that he can show his power. And he invites us in our weakness and he says, come and be a fellow worker. Come and be a ministry companion. Help provide that needed support. Pray and preach for the new believers who will get saved. Take Jesus' promises to the bank and utilise the peace he has gifted us while we've got it. And be ready to take over when someone else moves on. Because as we plant and another's water, God will give the growth. And so Lord, we pray that as we plant and water the seed of the gospel, do what only you can do. Make it grow. That many would believe and get baptised and that the name of Jesus would become the most prominent in our city, the most prominent in our communities. And we pray these things in his name and for his sake. Amen.